Father, you indeed are good. Lord, if we try to put our faith and our trust in any person or anything built with human hands, God, it will always fall short. It will always let us down. Whoever the person might be or the thing might be, we will always be let down. But God, we know. We know that you are good. And because you are good, God, we know that you're never going to let us down. That because you love us the way that you do, because you care for us and everything is within your control, that God, if we put our faith and our trust in you and in you alone, God, we can rest assured that you are good. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the time of praise and worship we've already had. Thank you for allowing us to celebrate what we were able to do as a congregation for George and how we are able to impact his life and not only his life, but the lives will be impacted through him, through your gospel. Lord Jesus, we just say thank you and you are good. So Lord, as we know that you are good and we know that your ways are higher than our ways, God, I pray that right now as we look at your word, as we look at what you have to say to us, I pray that our ears would be attentive to you and to you alone. That, God, our minds and our hearts would be fixed on the glory of God. And, Lord, we wouldn't let any other distractions come in and take away from what you're going to do in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who uses this word to change our lives. So, Lord Jesus, be glorified now as our lives are forever changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we are starting a new series today. The series is on the book of Esther. Uh, if you want to go ahead and start flipping in your Bibles there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther is where you'll get to Esther. Esther. So if you go to the book of Psalms, if you find the Psalms and you work back two books, you'll, the first book you'll run into is Job, and then backwards from there, you'll run into Esther. So if you want to just look for the Psalms and then go backwards two books, you'll find Esther. So... What is Esther all about? I, I was telling the group the other, uh, just a few minutes ago, we were in our prayer circle, I was talking to them about the book of Esther, I said, this book has got 10 chapters, so therefore we may be in this book for 10 weeks. And they were like, you mean this message is going to last 10 weeks, or this series is going to last 10 weeks? And I said, well, we'll see how it goes, but for right now, the series is going to last 10 weeks, you know, so rest assured, you're not going to be here for 10 weeks uh, we don't have enough breakfast foods to cover everybody for 10 weeks. But, you know, I just said, if we give it to Jesus, he'll multiply it. So if, if God leads us to be here for 10 weeks, buckle up. So anyway, we'll see how that goes. We're going to be in the book of Esther. And everybody's like, okay, Esther, the, you know, there's, there's two chicks that have Bible books named after them. There's Ruth and then there's Esther. What is Esther all about? Well, let me tell you this, that, that there's a couple of books that have to do with the Babylonian exile. So the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were taken into exile because they were captured by some bad guys, okay? And uh, the Babylonians come in, they take them under King Nebuchadnezzar, and they take them into captivity, and they're away from their homeland for a period of time. You can read about this in the books of Daniel. You can read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've covered the book of Nehemiah in here before, as a matter of fact. So you can read about this Babylonian exile and what God was doing through these people by them take, being taken into captivity, okay? So where is Persia? Basically, modern-day Iran is where it is. So if you want to think about where we're talking about in the world, that's where we're talking about. So you may ask yourself, okay, this book was written 470 years before Christ. Why are we talking about it today? What relevance does it have in my life today? 
So let me ask you this question. So in your life, if you have surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, there was this moment in time where God just kind of uncovered everything for you and, and the pieces all fit together. Maybe you heard a message or maybe you saw something or God revealed something to you and the gospel, the truth of the fact that God has surrendered his son Jesus Christ and paid the penalty of sin for all of us, it just clicked for you one day. And you said, you know what? I surrender to that truth. I give my life to Jesus Christ. He owns me. He controls me. Everything that I am, it belongs to Jesus Christ. It is not I that live, but Christ that lives within me. And you surrendered everything to him. And it was like it just clicked one day for you. Well, more than likely, there were some things that led up to that, right? There were some things that the the pieces of the puzzle started to, to come together. Maybe you went to a church service two weeks before that. Or maybe you heard something on the radio, or maybe there was a song or something that pieces led up to the fact that you came to that point, you came to that realization through God revealing things to you, and you just came to that understanding of the gospel that one time, maybe there was some things that led up to that, right? You would say there there were lots of little pieces that were put together beforehand, and all of a sudden it came down to that moment, right? Well, as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at these stories, these these books of the Bible in the Old Testament, you wonder why they're there. You wonder, what's the purpose? God, why are you showing us all this stuff that happened to the Israelites, that kind of all these different things that were going on, this biblical history? Why is it there? Why is it in this book? God, why did you put it there? And and my answer to that would be this. It would be that, that God's showing you the things that led up to Jesus. He's showing you the things that, you know, the little steps that were taken along the way and ultimately revealed itself in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. But these are all the things that led up to it. And you, as you look back in your life and you say, well, I saw Jesus at work in my life here at this point in my life. You know, for me, you know, when I, I think about my call to ministry, you know, the fact that my daughter was diagnosed with cancer around the same time that I was called to ministry, I see how that led up to a place called Simple Church. You know, there's all these things that happen in the background, and when you, when you look back, you can say, oh, I see these things now. I see how God was at work. I see how God was doing things before that moment actually came to fruition, right? And that's what we see in the Old Testament. We see all these Old, these old Testament ideas, things that God was orchestrating, putting together, and we look back in hindsight and go, oh, I see. God was doing some stuff, right? But you know what people have a tendency to do? They have a tendency to focus in on this one little thing, and they say, Oh, why could, I, why could they not eat pigs? Why do they have to wash their utensils in this certain way or that certain way? Why, why could they not touch pig skins? We have footballs today. Can I not touch a football? Well, glory to God, you can touch a football. Okay, I love football and I love throwing a football. And sometimes I throw it right here in front of the altar before the service starts. But you know what? The, the, the problem people have is they're not taking a look at the big picture. All, all the pieces put together and go, okay, I see. This is what God was doing. Sometimes you have to look at Scripture, and instead of focusing in on these details, you have to take a step back and say, what's going on? What's the big picture? What's really happening here? And you have to do that with the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you straight up, that's the way you've got you to gotta deal with the Old Testament. What's God doing here? What was he orchestrating? How was he working things out? You may remember these pictures that we used to have this is, I guess, maybe about 10 years ago. They were called stereograms. Everybody's like, I don't know what that means. They used to have these pictures in the mall. We're going to put one up on the screen for you right now, and you'll recognize it. You remember these? Oh, yeah, yeah, right? They'd sell these in the mall. You remember those? Like, like you, like, and you would see people standing there at the kiosk in the mall, and they were, like, doing this number, right? 
And then what would happen? Somebody would tell them, you got to take a step back. You take a step back and then let your eyes kind of go out of focus and you can see the picture, right? And a lot of you right now are staring at this picture going, what is that, right? A lot of you looking up there on the screen going, I want to see it, man. And some people, it drove me crazy because some people had a knack for seeing these and they could walk up, oh yeah, there's a pig and a cow and a chicken and a goat and I would be like, oh, I, I want to be able to do that, man. I would stand there for 20 minutes and I would be going back and forth. And I'd step over to the side a little bit and I'd do my head back. I'd squint my eyes sometimes, you know, trying to see the picture. And then finally I'd be like, oh, I see it. It's a giraffe. I love it. That is awesome. Now I'd go over to the other one and spend another 20 minutes looking at the next one. Just to put your minds at ease a little bit, because maybe we'll put this up after the service. Some of you can come up here and stare at it for 20 minutes. This is, a, this is a picture of Jesus on the cross, in case you're wondering what this one is. But, and some of you are like, I don't see it. You know, you can kind of see the Jesus face if you look a little bit closely at, at that middle line there. You can kind of see Jesus' face. But anyway, it's a picture of Jesus on the cross. But what I want you to see here is that we have to look at the Old Testament in particular, and see the big picture sometimes. We have, to, we have to look at it. Instead of focusing on the details, the little tiny bits, we have to take a step back and look at the whole picture and say, what's going on here? Well, how is God at work? And sometimes in your life you need to do this too. Instead of focusing in on the little details, maybe the test results that just came back, instead of focusing on those, you need to look at the bigger picture and what is God doing here. And, and, and instead of... Instead of looking at, 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 at just the little small things, the little details that tend to distract us more often than not, we need to take a step back and look at the big picture. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to get on you a little bit here because I needed somebody to get on me when I was in this place in my life, all right? So you know what the tough part is? People will say, man, I was reading the book of Leviticus, and man, I just don't get it. I, I, was, I was reading Nehemiah, and man, I just don't get it. I, I was reading this, or I was reading that, and I don't really understand. And, and, and I would say, number one, it takes a little bit of time. And number two, if you only come twice a month, it's hard to see the whole picture. You know what I mean? Like if, if you look at this picture, and I only give you this corner down here, and that corner up there, and this little piece over here, because I missed out on the bigger picture. That's why it's so important to come in here and be faithful to your attendance in church. Now, I'm not telling you that because I want a big crowd. I promise you. I don't care if there's two people in here. I promise you I don't care. But what I do care about is people going, that they, they, they have these struggles that pop up in their life, these difficult times, and they go, I'm struggling to see the big picture. I'm struggling to see what God is doing, and, and, and they struggle to see what God is doing because they can't look at Scripture and see what God is doing because they're only getting bits and pieces every now and then. They're showing up, experiencing a worship service, and man, that was good, but they're missing the big picture and not being taught and discipled about what God's Word says. And they go, I don't understand why I read. It takes some time, y'all. You ain't going to show up to a church service for, for a month and be like, oh, I get it. I understand all the Old Testament books now. And it don't work like that. But I'll tell you this. And, and some people say, well, I don't have the capacity up here. I don't, I don't have the brain power to understand all that, Kenny. I would say you're wrong because God's word says that you're wrong. And God's word says he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, then you can understand the whole of Scripture. But more than likely, it's not because you're not focusing in on it or you don't have enough brain power. It's just because you're not consistent in trying to understand it. 
And I needed somebody to tell me that a long time ago. And I'm so grateful that, that, that I, I actually said, you know what? It's important in my life to see the whole of Scripture because it is important in my life to see the, the, the whole picture of what God is doing in my life. So now Bible study is important to me. It's very important because I want to see the big picture, y'all. I want to see the big picture. And if you want to see the big picture and you want to understand things that you didn't think you could understand, be consistent. Be consistent. All right. Let's move on to the book of Esther. I'm going to read a few verses here, and then we're going to skip over a section, and we'll skip over some really hard names to say, and then we're going to go to another section. That's all right. You can laugh at me. You can get up here and say these names if you want to. In Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, The events happened in the, king, in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. You may say in, in your, your Bible, Ashuerus. That's the name I can say. Um, this is actually his Greek name, King Xerxes, and they probably put this in there so you could identify with the movie 300 or something like that. So the same dude, okay? So if you've ever watched the movie 300, same dude. It's just, just I mean, the Bible's real. This is a historical account. So at the same time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Susa was the, the winter home, if you will, of the, king of Persia, or the, the kingdom of Persia. This is where they stayed during the wintertime. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and, and, and media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth. Man, why don't they put that word in there? Opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. So when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded with marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there were abundant, an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity, the edict of the king. By the edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti, gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told his seven eunuchs who, atten who attended him, and I'm not going to say their names, to bring Queen Vashti to him with her royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was very beautiful, a very beautiful woman. When he... When, but when, he, when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So what's going on here? So the Persians had a plan to conquer Greece, all right? So uh, you can imagine uh, the, the movie 300, all these guys that are all ripped up with their swords and their shields and all that kind of stuff, and, and their plan is to go and conquer Greece. They, they, they're... 
the, the mentality of, of kings in that day was the more land I had, the more people I conquered, the more powerful I became, and that was important to them. So what they would do is if you had the biggest, baddest army in that day, you would go and you would take over other kingdoms, and you would bring them under your rule, and you would take their taxes, and you would put that money into your kingdom and not into their kingdom. So that is what drove these guys. That is what motivated them. So here they are. They're on the verge of going and trying to conquer Greece. And they're, they're all getting drunk, okay? They're all getting toe up, all right? I mean, and that's just me being straight up honest with you. That's what they're doing. I mean, the king said, we're just going gonna to have a party. and We're going to throw down, and it is going to be awesome, all right? And so, so he, he declares, he writes an edict that says that, you know what? People can drink as much as they want to. They can have as much of the royal wine as they want to. We are just going to have a good time. And everybody's like, can you please address the topic of drinking? Can you please address the topic of alcohol? Okay, I will. It is not a sin to drink alcohol, all right? You can put that on the podcast. It is not a sin to drink alcohol. Is it unwise to drink alcohol? Probably so. Probably so. And we're going to show an example right here. Because this king, he, he's getting toe up from the flow up, right? So he's, he's drinking. Y'all are like, I cannot believe he said that from the pulpit. But he's drinking, right? And he's having a good time and all of his boys are around. And you know how it gets. Guys get proud. Their chest bows out, you know. And they like, like y'all, we fixing it. I'm going to show you how powerful I am up in here. I'm going to show you what, what it's like to be king, guys, you know. And he's got all of his boys around. And, and, and several days have passed, so he, he's good and lit by now. So he, he's like, I know, I can't believe I said that either. <laughs> so he, he's been drinking quite a bit, and, and he's out of his mind by now. And, and he sends a decree. He sends his, his, the eunuchs, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to address what a eunuch is with you all, by the way. You can go research that on Google all your own, by the way, and have that conversation with your kids who are learning about this in the kids' department. So anyway, so he sends the eunuchs to go and tell the queen she got to come and, and, and display, put herself on display in front of all the other men that are in this party because she's having her own party at another location, right? So she's having a party for all the women. Now, let me tell you something here, okay? So in your Bible study, sometimes you run across stuff and you're like, Wow, I didn't know that was in there, okay? And this happens to be one of those times. There are commentators. There are people that studied the Bible for 50-some-odd years, okay? Like people that, that really dig into the Scripture. And what they say is this. It's, it's a couple possible conclusions here. One is that when, it's, when the king said for her to come wearing her crown and be on display for everybody, that the implication was she was supposed to come wearing only her crown. I know, right? Like, I went like, yeah, I know. I remember when I first told a bunch of college students that. I mean, like, that's the only thing they remembered from that, that whole message was, she's supposed to just wear her crown up in there? Like, that's what it sounds like, okay? The other indication is possibly this, that, that and she, she said no, right? I mean, that, so apparently she wasn't as drunk as he was, because she, she said no, he said he said, you come just wearing your crown. She said, no, uh-uh. But there's also another possibility, admittedly, and that is that, that she was having her own party over on the other side of town doing her own thing. And when the king said, come, she said, no. And that was not so good. 
in that day and that time for you to ignore the king or you to say no to the king. That did not happen. But whatever the case was, whether it was because she was only supposed to be wearing her crown or because she was having her own party, whichever the case may be, she told the king, no, I ain't doing that. You know that God gives us a conscience. Did you know that? I was having this conversation with somebody at 5 a.m. this morning. I'm not even kidding you. I had a, I had a, phone, I had a text message at 4.58. I responded at, at 5.05. And then I finally just I called the dude and I said, let's just talk about it, you know. And we were talking about the evil that exists in this world. Now, this guy happens to be in law enforcement. Law enforcement guys, they don't get a lot of sleep. And sometimes they're out riding around and sometimes they call me. So I, I got a phone call this morning. And, uh, and we were talking about it. I said, I said, I know that you see a lot of evil in the world. And I know that you, you wonder, man, do they even know better? Do they even have any clue about what right and wrong is? And I, said, I said, man, let me tell you, God has given us a conscience. A conscience. Now, like, even, even if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, even if you don't have somebody that's discipled you and taught you what the Word of God says, you have a conscience. The reason I can say that is because apart, even, even away from, from the Word of God, even the, the, the world knows that, that you can't kill somebody, and we make laws to say that it's not okay to kill somebody, Right? We make laws to say that it's not okay to steal. Even, if, even apart from the Ten Commandments, which tells us all of that, man has a conscience. Man knows right from wrong. You know deep down that when you do something that's wrong, you know that it's wrong. Now, admittedly, there is mental illness that can take some of that away or diminish some of that. I will admit that, but that is the rare instance. But most of the time, people know deep down in their heart what is right and what is wrong. This is a case in point. Queen Vashti knew that what he was asking her to do was wrong, and she said no. There's no indication that that she understands anything about the Word of God or anything about the Israelite culture or the God that they serve. She just says, this doesn't feel right. This is in my conscience, and I'm just saying no. I'm just saying no because this isn't right. And here is this man who is drunk on wine and he's asking for his wife to do something that is not okay. Now, a lot of people ask me, they say, so what's, the pro- what's your problem with alcohol? Why do you choose to abstain from alcohol altogether? This is my answer to that. I'll, I'll tell you, this is my answer. I'll say, well, we know it's a scientifically proven fact that alcohol lowers your inhibitions, Right? That, that's absolutely true. It's scientifically proven that what it does to your brain is it lowers your inhibitions and you are more likely to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. We know that, right? So do I want to take something into my body that is going to lower my inhibitions, going to diminish that conscience that God has given me, do I want to put something into my body that's going to do that? And then what's going to happen potentially is that once my inhibitions are lowered, once my conscience is squelched just a little bit, then I can take another drink and another drink and another drink. And before long, I'm in a place where I'm doing things that I wouldn't ordinarily do. Is it a sin to drink? No. Is it unwise to drink? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Somebody, I love this example. I've always given it all my life. People say, well, in the Bible, Jesus drank alcohol. 
Yep, absolutely. And then the Bible says, it doesn't say anything about me not being able to drink alcohol. I say, absolutely. I said, but the Bible also doesn't tell me not to juggle chainsaws. But I choose not to juggle chainsaws because that's inherently dangerous, right? Just because it doesn't explicitly say it in there doesn't mean that I can't use my own brain that God gave me to say, you know what? I know what the heart of God is, and I know what I need to do for me to behave the right way, so that's what I'm going to do. I know it's dangerous to me. God gave me a conscience. He gave me reflexes, so I know that when I grab a hot pot, then my hand jerks away before I even recognize that it's hot. God gave me those reflexes, so I know what I need to stay away from and what's going to hurt me and what's not. Now, you can take that for what it's worth. But that's my position on it. And here's a perfect example of a man who's asked his wife to do something she probably shouldn't do. And she said no, because she's got a conscience, and he don't right now. His has been squelched. His has been put to shame by two things. One is the alcohol. The other is his pride. His pride's welled up, so he's going to get his boys together and talk about, all right, what do we got to do with her now? It says uh, he consulted with his guys. So it said... um, there, there's these guys that, that are very well-versed in the law of the Medes and the Persians. They're called the Magi, okay? And they're actually the kingmakers in, 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 in Persia. They're actually the ones that, that raise up a little boy, train him in things like combat, and they, they teach him how to read, and they teach him mathematics, and they teach him how to read the stars and all this astrology garbage that they were all about at that point in time. So when it was time for that boy to become king, they would say, okay, all right, let's make him king. By the way, these are the same magi that came from the east to make Jesus king, to crown him king. When nobody in Israel would, God sent magi from the east to go and crown him king. You've heard that term magi before. And by the way, there wasn't just three of them. I know that the Christmas cards show that there were only three, but there wasn't just three, okay? So here... The king, King Xerxes, is going, and he's, he's like, all right, guys, what do we got to do? She's disobeyed the king. What do we got to do to handle this situation? How do we deal with this? The king decreed something. She ignored it. There's got to be a way to deal with this, and this is what it says. This is what they came back with in verse 19 of chapter 1. It says, so if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. It should... Order that Queen Vashti forever be banished from the presence of the king of King Xerxes, and that the king would should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree was published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. These guys must have been just as lit as the king was. So here they are. They're saying, "All right, this is what you need to do, man. You need to issue a decree. You need to." kick her out of the kingdom completely. Now, I want you to understand that that Queen Vashti probably knew that this was going to happen. When she said no to the king, she knows what the penalty for that is. And she said no anyway. See, she can't just go get a job doing hair and makeup somewhere else. I mean, like, once you've been kicked out of the kingdom, nobody's going to hire you. You're going from having everything, being the queen of the Persian Empire, to having nothing as a result of you saying one word, and that is no. It's not okay. It's not all right. What you've asked me to do is not okay. And she stood her ground. And she said, no, this is not what I'm going to do. And 
And I want you to kind of look at that for just a minute today. I want you to kind of ask yourself that question. Are there things in your life where, where you're being pulled to one direction and you just need to stop at that place and say, no, I'm not going to do it because it's not right. It's not okay. I'm talking about, I don't care if you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you because you've surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ or you are just a person with a conscience. Are you willing to just say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not okay. I'm not going to go down that direction. Even if I've been that way before, no matter what I have done before, no matter what my life has looked like in the past, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Or are you going to be more like King Xerxes, who is more worried about his image and how powerful he looks in front of everybody else, how strong he looks in front of everybody else. And that is what takes precedence in your life. That, that, that's what rules and reigns in your life is how you look to everybody else. Are, are you willing to take a stand on the things that you know aren't okay? I, I, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question. That question is this. What rules and reigns in your life? You know, some people, they, they go around... And they're in a uh, very public environment, and they're with their friends, and they're, they're around everybody else, and, and they just want to fit in. They just want to do whatever everybody else is doing. And they think it's okay because everybody else is doing that. You know what I think real strength is? I think real strength is when people say no. I'm not going to go along with the crowd. I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I don't care how, what the outcome is. What matters most is I know what's right and what's wrong. And I'm going to do what's right. I heard somebody say not long ago, if you do what's right, you are right. If you do what's right, you are right. Or are you more concerned with fitting in, how cool, how strong you look? You look at this story, you look at King Xerxes, and you look at Queen Vashti, and you ask yourself, who is more strong here? You ask yourself, who is more strong here? Do you know that, that this kind of makes me think to another guy? It makes me think forward in, into the future when Jesus is standing there before Pilate. And Pilate has the opportunity to say, you're going to be crucified or you're not. He, he, he's looking around at everybody else and he's listening to the crowd. And what do they say? Crucify him, right? Crucify him. You know what Jesus says? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. And who was doing the right thing then? Who was doing the right thing then? Because you know, you know what Pilate was most concerned about? He was concerned about his power. He was concerned about the fact that there had been uprisings in, in, in the city at that time. And he, he was trying to just keep everything quiet so he could continue to have his power, to have his rule, to have his reign. He didn't want anybody to be upset. So what did he do? He went along with the crowd. Is that you? Is that you? Are you more concerned with having the appearance of strength or having real strength? What, what's the place in your life? that you're in right now. I'll kind of fast forward and tell you the end of the story in Esther, and that is that God uses her 
We haven't even talked about her name. She hasn't even been introduced yet. But God uses this, this lady named, named Esther to save his people, to redeem his people. God used his son Jesus Christ to save his people, to redeem his people. If the pattern of your life thus far has been one where you just go along with the crowd, because you thought that was what was a strong thing to do because you just wanted to fit in but today God has impressed upon your heart that you need to go the opposite direction that you need to stand up and say no will you surrender to his power and his authority and fall down on your face before him today and say God I need you it's not going to be easy when I stand up and say no when I stand up and say this is not the direction I need to be headed it's not going to be easy I need your encouragement I need your strength will you fall down on your face today and ask him for that Whatever place you may be in your life today, maybe you're just hurting and maybe you just need to to fall down on your face and say, God, I know that in this book, what we've read so far, it doesn't look like you're there at all. It doesn't look like you're working at all. But the reality is, God's at work. He's using evil King Xerxes and he's using these magi and all they think that they understand, he's using all of that to save his people. Will you surrender to that kind of God today? Will you just come to him and say, I need you, Father, because I know you're at work in my life, even though it doesn't look like it right now. I know that you're at work in my life. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this precious word. And God, so many times we doubt and we wonder if you're even there. We wonder how in the world could this situation be working out for your glory and our good. God, we wonder that all the time. God, but the message of your word is that you're constantly at work. You're constantly doing great things, and you are constantly working to redeem your people. That it all boils down to Jesus Christ. So Lord, today I pray that the love of Jesus Christ would rule and reign in this place. That people would fall down on their face before you today and just say that they need you. God, I pray that people wouldn't go along with the crowd, but they would stand up and say no. They'd be a people that run the other way and say, you know what? I'm going to do what the right thing is. And because they do what is right, they are right. So Lord Jesus, you made us right. You made us right. By your sacrifice on the cross, God, now we can obtain your righteousness in the eyes of God. So, Lord, today, be glorified as we surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would everyone stand?